What's up? Welcome to the Entangled Podcast. My name is Ashley. I'm Taylor. And I'm Henry. We are three educators from Teach for America that get together on this podcast to talk about education in Louisiana and all the subjects entangled within it. See what I did there? In each episode, we unpack the latest news of Louisiana's state of education, discuss the hottest topics in the field, and make sense of it all with a touch of humor. Thank you for tuning into this episode, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, y'all. Hey, hey, hey. How y'all feeling? It is. We're here. We made it. We made it to our final episode. <laughs> two seasons down, two whole seasons down. What an accomplishment. Um, mm-hmm. How are y'all feeling now that we're done with two seasons as podcasters? We're like podcasters now, y'all. It's official. Yeah. Yeah. Along with everybody else in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair. Fair. <laughs> You know what? But at least ours, I feel like, is very niche. Mm-hmm. You know? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And our friends listen and our friends love it. Yeah. And I listen and I love it. <laughs> so that's all that really matters. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. I would say, you know, as far as how I feel about it, I am very proud. I'm proud because we really have developed as a team, as podcasters, we have developed our sound. And this season, we actually pushed out more content than the previous one and higher quality content, if you ask me too. So yes. I'm, I'm proud. I'm very proud of us. Proud of this team. Yes. Shout out to us. High five to us. High five to us. Yay! High five. <laughs> yeah, I, child. So every time I listen back to the episode, I'm like, wow, it's giving professional. It's giving... <laughs> Smart. It's giving smart. It's giving the equipment is doing what needs to be done. Um, And so is our editor. So shout out to you, Henry. (laughs) Thank you. You've been making a sound excellent. Excellent. Thank you for the shout out. We sound good. And I'm listening to the podcast. I'm like, we sound like intellectuals. Yeah. (laughs) You know why, though? You know why? Because we are. That part. I'm going to claim it. Okay. I'm going to name it to claim it. (laughs) Amen. Well, shout out to us making it to the final episode of this season. Um, And I'm going to pass it on over to Taylor to give us the final current events section of the season. It is the final current event section and I, it has been a long, has it been a year or has it been like 15 years? I don't know. Pretty much. Man. Um, I want to pause for a moment to acknowledge May is mental health awareness month. Mm. And so I'm actually not going to do any current events. This is just going to be more about like it's mental health awareness month. There have been some things happening in the news around mental health. So in the next, for the next few minutes, I will give like a content warning slash trigger warning. There will be mentions of death by suicide and self-harm in the next section. So if you do not want to listen, just fast forward a few sections to get to the 
um, to the teacher's lounge. Okay. So I decided I wanted to have this conversation because one, it is Mental Health Awareness Month. And last week, I saw the news that a cheerleader, a freshman cheerleader from Southern University died by suicide. Mm. And so I'm going to read a little bit from the article. And Arlana Miller, 19, was a freshman from Texas and a member of Southern University's uh, cheerleading team. And she, things were noticed when she was essentially, she posted her suicide letter on Instagram. Oh, man. And people took notice. They started commenting. And then, unfortunately, her family released a statement that she had indeed died by suicide. Mm. And so I just want to take a moment to pause so we can send good vibes and prayers to the Miller family and her friends. And so something that she put in her caption on Instagram was to check on your strong friends quote unquote Mm. and I was like oh Jesus okay that's that's tough because life is tough and I feel like a lot of people are feeling having feelings of like hopelessness by virtue of all of the terrible policies that are trying to get passed right now Mm. all of the terrible policies that have already been passed (laughs) The history of this country and this world and life can just feel hopeless at times. So I do want to acknowledge that in the show notes, we will be putting the link to the suicide prevention hotline so people can know how to support people in their lives. So people can know how to support themselves because sometimes it is hard to find purpose Mm -hmm. to continue staying here and being Mm -hmm. here. So lifestyle life is hard and there's resources out there. So we want to make sure that those are in the show notes. Um, and to bring this back, Arlana was 19. And this actually connects to another post that was shared with me by the New York Times about the mental health crisis facing adolescents mm-hmm. and the role of digital technology. Yo, I think I read that one too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. someone someone just sent it to me this morning. Um, And so the article is saying that adolescent mental health started to deteriorate sometime around 2009, Mm -hmm. which just so happens to align to when the internet started to become a thing. Mm. And, um, And so they high schoolers are experiencing persistent sadness and hopelessness and loneliness. And there is an increased visit of emergency room Mm -hmm. to emergency rooms for self-harm among Americans ages 10 to 19. Um, And so I'm not going to get too much into this article. It's obviously going to be in the show notes so you can click it and read it. But like I said, life is hard and the internet Mm -hmm. is one of those things that can be used for good. 
and for for not so good yeah um and so considering how can we take care of our students and ourselves while also using the the amazing features that technology has to offer us Mm -hmm. um and so I'm pretty certain this is going to connect to our guest that we're going to have in the teacher's lounge um, and talking about student health and wellness and social emotional learning and all of that Mm -hmm. jazz. So I can't wait to see like how everything connects to that. This post that said something about checking on your strong friends made me think about a time when I was doing our summer training when I was becoming a core member that caught me by surprise because I was guilty of this, but I remember in one of our sessions, and I believe it was a DEI session that uh, I think, I believe one of our black core members had said, she was a black woman, said like, and I really think we need to stop calling and considering black women as strong women and putting Mm -hmm. that label on them. Mm -hmm. And that caught me by surprise because I always thought that was a a point of pride, you know, it's like black women are strong and we're proud of that. And maybe to a degree, yes, we should be proud of that. And the kind of pressure that that puts on black women and the maybe a lack of compassion because, hey, you should be able to withstand these uh, adversities that you're going through because you're a black woman and you're strong. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to go talk to a couple more of my black women peers to be like, Hey, can you, can like, can we talk about this more? Cause I, I've, I think I'm definitely guilty of always thinking of black women as strong and, uh, and by, by default too, right. <laughs> Not by virtue. So I'm curious, do we know what, um, like what Alana's demographics were? She was a black woman. Mm. And that actually connects mm-hmm. to something else I'm going to add from Pew Research Center. This only has up until 2019, but I'm sure I'm going to make an educated guess to say that it has increased from 2019 to now. But between 1999 to 2019, the rate of increase among suicide from uh, uh, by Black women is 65%. Mm. damn white women 68 percent and get this american indian and alaskan native women 139 percent increase Uh, latino uh latina women 37 percent increase and asian and pacific islander women 15 percent increase i think across i think across cultures women are I'm trying to get out of like using this gender binary I would say like feminine presenting people or whatever the case may be are tasked with being strong and being like matriarchs of their family or Mm -hmm. being um the glue that holds their families and their friend groups together and that doesn't allow for much vulnerability and I think strength comes from vulnerability, vulnerability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we view it as this binary thing, then that's when people get in this place where there's an assumption like you're a Black woman, 
why do you need to go to therapy? Or you're a black woman, why, what's wrong with you? Or whatever the case may be. And so that was one of the things that Arlana mentioned in her post. And she gave like some other potential rationales um, of some things that she was going through in her life that made her life very difficult. I think check on your strong friend is the thing that really stuck out to me because that's usually where I orient myself in, in the friend group. That was a call out to myself. To no, it, it stuck out, out to me too. It stuck out to me too. When you said that, like, I was like, wait, whoa, oh, whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all of these resources will be in the show notes and this was a little heavy and it was just very important for me to mention because I think often we view, we have like our perceptions of suicide and who it affects, but a lot of Black people have died by suicide over the past year or so. And so I think previously and historically it's not seen, suicide is not seen as something that impacts Black people, which we know is not the case. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to bring that to the forefront and just make sure people are taking care of themselves and the people around them and getting support where you need it. So that is all Whew! for the, t uh, the current events and the therapy lounge. <laughs> All right, sweet. Well, for today's Teacher's Lounge, I'm actually very excited to have our final guest of the season. Her name is Miri Alice King. She's the Chief Executive Officer at Community Academies of New Orleans. She's also the only Latina CEO, better actually, let me clarify, the only Afro-Latina who is out there uh, leading an organization in education in the city of New Orleans. So without further ado, Miss Mirialis King, thank you for being here with us today. How are you? I am so thrilled to be here and honored that I'm your last guest. I would hate to say that you left the best for last, but you know, <laughs> if y'all were going to say it, I wouldn't exactly. deny it. <laughs> exactly. I was like, no, no need to apologize. That's the truth. We saved the best for last. Lovely. So listen, I want to start off by, you know, allowing you to tell us your story, just or to tell us all about yourself, like, who, who are you? Um, and then after that, we're going to talk more about the work that you do. But tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> it's a, a little question with a big answer. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I was born there, lived there till I was 10 years old. And um, our family moved to the, uh, we like to call the continental United States. <laughs> um, and I came to the U.S. as an English, as a second language learner, which in retrospect is such a, like a weird title or label because I will always be an ESL person because English will always be my second language. So it's like something that you never get rid of. I am Afro-Latina. Um, however, I am very well aware that I am passing um, and have that privilege 
I also was considered academically gifted. And so my experience was very different from my brother's experience, who is not white passing, who is a um, man of color, a young man when we moved to the U.S., the continental U.S. Um, he also um, has ADHD and is dyslexic. And so he, as you can imagine, I hear from like the, know, the knowing nods <laughs> that it was a very different experience from him than it was for me. And I actually didn't realize it until I got to college how different it was. Um, I just thought, you know, I was a good big sister and just thought that like, he wasn't applying himself. He wasn't like being good enough, right? Like do do your work and you'll, you'll be fine. And realized that actually that was not true. I had the privilege to work in Holyoke, Massachusetts and in, in um, college. Um, and that's where I started my journey in education. Growing up, I always knew that I wanted to do something that impacted societal norms. I saw a lot of things growing up in military bases in different places in the world with my brother and, you know, included that were not okay. My household that were not okay. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that I was going to um, work to eradicate some of that through the legal system. And then I got to college and had this incredible opportunity to work with primarily a Puerto Rican community in in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Um, As an aside, my Boricua family, I don't know why we are always moving to like the coldest places in the world. Um, Like we really like, can we stay in the South or California? Like, no, we got to go to like Holyoke, Western Massachusetts. That's where we're all. Okay, cool. (laughs) So while there, I met just some incredible young people. And um, they started telling me stories about their everyday life in, in school and in their neighborhoods. And it was the pivotal moment for me um, as I think back of understanding that my brother, Luis, Luis's um, experiences were not just Luis's experiences, but they, mm-hmm. they were systematic and they weren't just something that happened to him on military bases or, um, in places that we lived, but they were happening across the U S and if anything was going to happen to really make change it needed to happen at the base level of education. And so, uh, went to law school, practiced for a little bit, came back into the classroom um, after leaving it for like a decade, realizing that if I was going to do policy work or if I was going to do any bigger like legal work that I needed to really get back into the roots. And that um, brought me to New Orleans as a non-traditional tfa I was a founding fifth grade ELA teacher at a school here in Central City. Loved my kids so much. And they were coming after their first year of testing. And so you would think, you know, they all passed the big fourth grade exam, like we're ready for fifth grade content. And that was not true at all. Majority of my uh, kids were at a kindergarten level in reading and it was devastating. I didn't know what to do. (laughs) Um, How do we catch kids up five grade, six grade levels, right? Because they needed to be a fifth grade um, reading level. And we worked and they worked so hard and they grew three grade levels in that yes. year, which is great, right? Like super yes. amazing. That meant that they were in a second grade level. They yeah. were fifth grade. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Like that's yeah. devastating, devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just felt like 
I, I'm not doing enough. I don't know what else to do. I like advocated for a literacy coach. I'm like, I don't, I didn't, I don't have a PhD and like how kids learn how to read. I need more support. And I think about all the young teachers that come through TFA or any other, you know, just even go through college and then become teachers. Um, and if they, you know, have the oftentimes like audacity to be able to advocate in that way. You know, I was, I was grown at that point and, you know, in my thirties and, you know, had a, a whole career as an attorney and I felt like I was fighting. Um, and I can't imagine being 21 trying to like navigate a system, mm. right. Yeah. For our kids. And, you know, that, that piece was also heartbreaking. I really hated the way that black and brown bodies were policed and really like made me sick. And so mm. I think all of those things coupled made it clear to me that when another door opened to allow me to start my own school, when I first said, no, thank you. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. The second time I said, I, I think this is like the right move, like things need to be different. And if we're not doing something different, then we're just adding to the problem. And so here we are. I, I am really appreciative of, I'm very clear on like why you do what mm -hmm. you do. And I don't even know really, in in full depth like what you do on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis or and I'm like oh I can I have an idea of the kind of person who goes from being a lawyer <laughs> to going back into mm -hmm. the classroom mm -hmm. like I have a firm understanding is like oh that's a person who really has a strong understanding of their own life experiences and the experiences of their of the people they love and that they know that this is not just something that can be addressed at the policy level, but this is actually something that is policy plus some additional mm -hmm. things that need to happen. And so I appreciate you naming and sharing in part your brother's story, um, because I think quite so often Black boys in particular are cast to the side in schools by virtue of potentially undiagnosed or unacknowledged mental challenges and so mm -hmm. like obviously your brother should have gotten the support that he deserved in school and so you enable you being able to take that and be like how can we make sure this doesn't happen again is something that I love so thank you thank you I love that policy plus I use policy that plus yeah. <laughs> yeah, so many of our core members, you know, even first year, second years, a lot of them talk a lot about how they want to go into education policy because they feel like that's where they can make the most mm -hmm. impact. Yeah. And I think there's there, there may be some level of truth to that, right? Not to yeah. say you couldn't do it in the classroom either. At the same time, I'm like, yeah, but I think I, I, I just want to clarify for you that like you making policy or going into education policy is not going to solve educational, educational inequity alone. Right? Like we do need that, but policy plus, as Taylor said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that part. And we, and we see some of the people who are making the policies. And to be quite honest, I mean, I talk about old white men all the time on this podcast, but <laughs> they come up with a lot of stuff. And sometimes they're the ones that are writing these policies. And I'm like, you have never been to, in a classroom teaching, been a principal, or been in a school that services Black and Brown and poor students. So like, why are you writing this policy exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah why do you mm -hmm. get to be the one yeah why do you get to be the one mm -hmm. so. yeah mm -hmm. that yeah. part for sure 
But to, uh, to actually to get back to one of the points that that Taylor had said about it's like, oh, I'm, I don't really know exactly what your work looks like. Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to, to allow you to uh, elaborate on that. You know, what what does your work look like or, you know, what does what does your leadership look like in, in the schools in which you work? Yeah. Um, you know, again, little question, big answer. I think my leadership has evolved from leading a single site school to leading an organization that runs and operates for schools. And I think some of that um, evolution comes from delegation. <laughs> I was a single site operator. It was hands-on, you know, laid by example, like we all are all things, right? Like my team has seen me mop, like hammer, <laughs> like whole things. I have pride, sweated, like the whole yeah. nine yards. Uh, definitely lots of like bleeding for our single site. And I think that there's certainly always a place for that. Ultimately, it was unsustainable as, as we grew. Um, and so I think my leadership now is more akin to how do I support my team to understand what the bar of excellence is mm -hmm. and what they're driving towards. Everything that we do is for our kids. So every decision that we make we have to step back and think, is this what's right for our children? And if the answer is no, then you need to go back to the drawing board. And so leading from that place, we really, through our trauma program, have a, a robust restorative practices um, in, in all of our schools. Foundation Prep was actually the first elementary school to open up using restorative practices in the city, mm -hmm. um, which we're really proud of. Um, because it was generally something that was thought for like high school kids. Restorative practices is what we should yeah. be doing, period, period. Through that work, we teach, you know, you learn from your mistakes. That starts at the top, right? Like I am really transparent that I don't know all things. Um, not one person does. And if they tell you that they do, they are lying and you should run. Um, <laughs> I, <hate that>. um, <laughs> I make a ton of mistakes. Uh, you know, I, in, in my personal life, in my professional life, that is you are human and that's part of being human. And you have to give yourself grace and you have to give others grace and learn from mistakes. We, we had a meeting where someone said, you know, we, we learn from our mistakes, but we try not to make them twice. And if we make them a third time, it's no longer a mistake. It's a habit. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there, there is a difference there. And that came from like one of our teammates, one of my teammates. And so it was a moment for me where I was like, you got it right. Like that, yeah. that is the delegation of the mission and the vision and, and what we um, strive for so that each one of our children is getting an equitable education, is getting an education that we would want for our own personal children. It's the education that we would have wanted for our younger selves. You know, it's the education that I would have wanted to Taylor's point from my little brother. And so um, it's still leading by example, but it, but it's more of like the delegation of that example. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Retweet. Kim, what, a, what a powerful approach in a way that you support like your schools, your students and your community. I think, you know, a lot of folks look at Teach for America and they're like, you don't live here. You're not from here. True. Right. Yeah. Like I am not originally from Louisiana. I come from Detroit. I am a northerner. <laughs> and so <laughs> when I moved here and even just now becoming a resident of New Orleans because I at one point lived in Baton Rouge for quite a while, like four years. 
I think when I moved to New Orleans, I, I'm an empath. And so I was like, this city is heavy. Mm-hmm. It is heavy. And so the fact that you all are just like literally tapping into kids like at a young age to be able to kind of like be self-aware and just to understand the way in which they're moving about this world and ways in which they can learn from their mistakes, like that's powerful. And so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see this generation of kids grow up that will be more self-aware, more, you know, more knowledgeable, yeah. more, more emotionally intelligent, because yeah. I've heard several times from other people that emotional intelligence is lacking in our society. And so it's like, just, just wanted to also note that that is very powerful and exciting work that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's deep work, right? Like to your point, mm-hmm. like it's, it's, it's a heavy city. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it was not easy. We didn't come in and we're like, and this is what we're doing. And we were like, yes, <laughs> it was not bad at all. Right. I had so many conversations, meetings, conferences with our founding um, families who were just like, Miss King, you can you can hit her if you want to. And I'm like, that, that's no, that's not what we're going to do. That's <laughs> oh not, yeah. not today, not yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> or they're like, I told him that if someone messes with him, then he needs to hit them back or hit them first, or you don't start it, you finish it. And like, I get that because that's the exact same messaging that mm-hmm. I got growing up, right? I understand that generational piece of like, yeah. you know, you buck on me, I'm a buck on you. Yeah. Oh, we don't start fights, we finish them, right? Okay. Like yeah. get all of that. And like, we're not any better as a result. So yeah. let's like think about something different, right? Yeah. And so um, like that continual um, conversation, that continual um, creating relationships mm-hmm. with families and letting them know like, we're gonna, we're gonna have this conversation again. Like I'm not, we're, we're not changing that. And that first year I was like, man, we are like this. <laughs> I don't know how many times like I can meet with the same families and tell them the same things. And then three years in, it was our first testing year. One of our founding students, a young woman, had an altercation in the playground with another young woman that had just started with us that year. And she was actually the latter um, young woman was the precipice for our, our trauma-informed program. She came into us that summer and she had witnessed her father murdered in front of her. And it was, it, talk about heavy, right? Mm-hmm. And she was manifesting really violent um, episodes as a result of her trauma. Um, And so, you know, we had all kinds of systems set up with her. We had had like even like real-time coaching where she had a little piece of paper on her desk and our counselor would come in and like, okay, which ones are these are we feeling? What is our next steps? Like literally coaching her through Mm -hmm. how to work um, through um, her manifestations um, when she was triggered. And um, to the point that we in September, early September, referred her to Children's Bureau for trauma counseling. Mm -hmm. And she didn't get in until the end of December. Right. And we were like, this this cannot happen again. Yeah. Right. So, so we'll put that aside for the moment, but so in the early spring, her and one of our founding students had, a, had a fight. There wasn't a fight. She like got triggered in the playground. She started wailing on our founding student. Our founding student ran to her teacher and <laughs> told her teacher, you know, so-and-so is having an episode, like we, we need to do something. This same founding student is one of the students whose mom is like, she gets said she's going to hit them back. And this is what I tell her at home. And I'm not going to accept anything else, Miss King. 
constant communication with her. I'm like, this is like that we want better. We want to do something different. We want, you know, like, let's think about like your goals for your child. Like, how are we going to get them there together? Fortuitously, mom was in the office when I brought her in and she was checking her out and I was like, oh my gosh, I was actually going to call you and let you know (laughs) that this happened in the playground. And I am so proud. And it was such an example of what, you know, we stand for and what it means Mm -hmm. to be a friend and like a teammate. And mom said to me, I'm really proud too, because we've been working on that at home. And I wow. like fell out. Wow. I could not. It was just probably one of my prouder moments. Yeah. Um, because that's generational change. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's that's how we make a difference. And so yeah, so we, you know, she's still with us. She's about to be an eighth grader, and I can't oh. believe it. And and mom has brought, she's had two babies since, and they all come to school with us oh um, because they know that they're, you know, she's t- they're taken care of. Yeah. But the little girl who um who had the trauma, we got her into counseling and it like made a world of difference. And um, that year to like pat ourselves on the back, our little school of 100% FRL students, uh, 20% students with exceptionalities, 30% immigrant students board at the top 20 percentile of the city on the leap. Um, So came out gangbusters, right? (laughs) Um, And it was because kids were in classrooms because we took care of them socially, emotionally, and mentally before we expected them to be in a class. Our counselor that year had lost her father a couple of years beforehand, right? Own adult. And she at one point told me, you know, I was a wreck for a year after I lost my dad and I am a grown up. Like I can't imagine anyone asking me to be in a classroom, um, talking about some book or (laughs) numbers or anything else. If I had experienced what our student had experienced. Right. And so we knew at that point we needed to do something different. We knew that like what we were doing clearly was not enough. Right. Because it wasn't until we got her into the trauma therapy that we started to see like some real um, changes for the positive. And so um, that's how our program was born. We uh, we did something called the Strength Difficulty Questionnaire, which is akin to the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences screener that um, psychiatrists use. And uh, that first year, that right before the summer when we gave it out, we found out that 90% of our kids had experienced some type of trauma. And so when we think about trauma, we think about the spectrum of students who are going through like housing insecurity, food insecurity on one end and on the other end of the spectrum, students who have seen or have experienced some violence in their life. Um, And then everything in between, right? We think about like um, students who have gone through divorce, students who have lost, you know, um, a grandmother that was actually, you know, more like one of their caretakers, right? Like there are all of these things that happen in between those two pieces of the, those two sides of the spectrum that we realize our kids were experiencing. And it was multiplied by the fact that 
We also not only served a high uh, population of students that were living in poverty, but also a high population of students who had immigrated into the, um, the states. And so thinking about, you know, when a family decides to leave their country, their home, it is because of the most dire circumstances. Right. And so a thinking about what happened, what was the precipice for that move, and then the move itself. Um, we know so many of our families go through extraordinary yeah. feats yeah. to get to the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so we were dealing with all of those manifestations in our kids. Um, so again, like how could we in like any sane way ask him to like sit down and you know talk about like the lightning thief there it just wasn't going to happen unless we supported them in a different way and so once we had the screener we took that information um our tier one is you know restorative practices it's like full-time counselor doing um full school um campaigns like no bullying no hit zones things like that and then the second tier is those conferences with restorative practices group counseling with our counselors, maybe individual counseling um, with our counselors. And then that third highest tier is we brought in Children's Bureau. We actually brought them into our building and said, we will make the time. We will like carve it out so that you can see our kids who need to see someone to support them. Um, And then on holidays, on weekends, during the summer, the counselors go to the home and it's full wraparound services for not just the child, but also their family. Um, and so we have seen this just like catapult the work that we um, started off with just like restorative practices mm-hmm. and like having a counselor. So like really being purposeful about like, what is the data telling us? Yeah. Taylor missed DDI. <laughs> what is the data telling us? And how are we responding to that data? Right. It's one thing to, to get the SDQs and say, okay, well, we have 90% of kids who have experienced trauma, but like, what are, what are we, what actually are we doing yeah. to support them and their families? Because yeah. again, with my story of our founding student, it's, it's a, a team effort. Like families have to be invested. Um, and it isn't something that like, you're like, oh, well, they're not invested. No, how are you investing your families? Yeah. That is uh, to <laughs> Henry's point of, of uh, pioneering. We are the only school that, that has this robust tier system. core members and we say like ideally you would practice restorative practices right like ideally you would do something that is more positively leaning as opposed to like (laughs) get out um and so I'm wondering I know you mentioned the counselors and like the counselors pushing in to do some support and give support Mm -hmm. to students and families what are some of the things that teachers are doing that are actually like actionable for like a new teacher to mm-hmm. implement in their classroom you're just hitting me with these big questions y'all <laughs> we are some people want to know people want to know i mean it's like I, I will talk about this all day long so we can prepare ourselves um 
school-wide, every child has at least three touch points with an adult when they walk into the building, whether it's coming off the bus, walking into the building, into the cafeteria, into your classroom, they hear their name in a positive way at least three times when they walk into a building purposefully so that they're starting their day in the space of like, I am seen, I am loved, I am welcomed here. And, and so I start off with that because, you know, the, the big question is like, what can I do in my classroom? It starts with that, that like very like initial space. Yeah. And so in, in that morning intake, you also get a sense of like, oh, well, you know, student A had a rough time getting off the bus today or student B looked a little sleepy or student C didn't eat, didn't want their breakfast. They said their stomach hurt. And so we have all these touch points. We have all these data points as soon as kids walk in to know like, okay, like maybe we need to send student C to the nurse to see what's going on with their stomach. We need to send student B to the counselor. Maybe they need to take a little nap and student A, like let's tell the teacher who's in the classroom so that they can check in on them while they're like eating breakfast and getting themselves together mm-hmm. for the first bits of the day. We do our SDQ. Um, and so teachers are also taught how to actually fill out the SDQ, especially for our little ones, our pre-K kindergartners, first graders, second graders, the teacher does most of it because it's anecdotal. Third through fifth, they also go to the families. Um, and sixth through eighth, they like do a self-assessment as well. And so that we have the data to know, okay, these students we know are on this trajectory, have, you know, have this score on the SDQ. And so something else is happening. So there is a plan set out for them already. The third piece is uh, like a robust MTSS. Multi-tiered system. system. Um, And so that means that you're looking at every single child and you're digging into data. And so you're saying, okay, well, this child has missed, you know, five days this month. There's something else there, like let's engage our counselor, let's engage our culture coordinator to go do a house visit to make sure that everything is all right at home. Or this child has been um, needing a check-in with a culture coordinator every day around, you know, 11 a.m. What's happening at 11 a.m.? Like, is there a transition? Um, Is it uh, a subject? whatever it is that's going on at 11 um, that is causing this um, reaction. That takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, um, but it also takes a lot of training, right? Like you have to, in the beginning, like really teach in particular novice new teachers, all of the data points that we need and and support them in collecting that data. Um, And then also like Again, buy-in is so important, not just with families, but also with staff, right? Like you have to engage and let them know the why this is so important because if you're not, you don't know what it was like first year teaching, um, you have a million things to do. And then, and then someone's coming to you and be like, I need you to take this data on your students. And you're like, I, on top of all the data that I'm already taking, right. Um, you have to really have a culture where people really understand that, that this data is super important, um, that kids can't be in classrooms learning the academic piece if they're not able to do that emotionally and mentally. Mm-hmm.
And then uh, more directly to your question of like, okay, so this is popping off in my classroom right now. Like, what do I do? Um, that's why the culture coordinators were there. That's why the counselors were there. That's why there's already a lot of systems in place so that there is a plan if something does happen in the classroom with any particular child. And sometimes things happen within the year that we may know about, we may not know about, but students manifest those pieces differently than they may have that at the beginning of the year, right? And so like, it's an ever evolving um, system and plan for all of our kiddos, which is why the MTSS has to be like every month so that we're keeping track of that. And teachers are never alone, right? The culture coordinator is always there. Principals, APs, instructional coaches are there to do the same. And so there's always a a space where if more support is needed, um, there are folks there to support our teachers and our students, right? Because supporting the teachers supports the students. Yay! And you know, I know you mentioned that like for your, your teachers, it's a lot of work, but in the end, it seems like the results do pay in dividends, right? Like if your, your kids are performing really well in the state tests, like ultimately, I mean, that's, that's what, what a lot of us care about, right? That they're performing well, but more than anything, right? Like they're developing as human beings so that these mm-hmm. vicious cycles of whether it's you know violence or you know poor manifestations continue to get passed on from like the next generation to generation it's like you're breaking this 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 curse um which is trying yeah no i know it's like ridiculously hard work but like it's very exciting to to, to hear about so I actually wanted to ask you, I would dig a little deeper into these restorative practices because, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, if something happens, we have systems in place, right? We have counselors, we have the uh, culture coordinator. Are there any, you know, resources or, or practices that you recommend that maybe I can't come work at your school right now, um, maybe <laughs> now I'm interested. <laughs> But is there anything I can do to start helping my students and to continue being a trauma-informed educator or just like to be more responsive to Mm -hmm. the needs of my students who have trauma? Yeah, 100%. And I'm sorry, I think Taylor, you may have actually, that may have been your question. And I went on some (laughs) crazy rabbit hole about what we do at our schools. Context (laughs) matters. Now that the people have the context, then they'll yep. be like, okay, so now what's the now, thing? Now, now I know. So we go through the IIRP, which is the International Institute of Restorative Practices. And so they're internationals, as the name says. Um, and um, their big questions in the beginning is what happened? What was the impact of what happened? And how do you make it better? Right? Because I think innately, like human nature is to ask like, you know, what did you do? (laughs) uh, Why did you do that? Right. And I don't know if you ever asked, so what did you do? Or why did you do that to a child? And they're like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm." and so these really um, pointed questions get to the space of removing stigma, removing um, opinion and judgment um, from the action, right? Like uh, there was this, we say beat up the work, not the person. And so, we don't think like there is no bad kid there is a kid that makes a bad decision and that's very different 
right? Mm-hmm. And so even like the questions that we ask really dictate whether you think a child is bad or whether you yeah. think a child made a bad decision. And so when you ask a kid, why did you do that? You're innately saying, you know, you're a bad kid as mm-hmm. opposed to tell me what happened. Like, what were the actual things that occurred? And then how did the, those actions impact people? Who, who did they impact? Whether, you know, it positively or negatively, how did they impact them? Um, And then how can you, how can you fix what you did? Right. And so that is something that every teacher can do. It is, it is harder than saying, Henry, that's strike to or whatever system folks are using, you know, Henry, that's, you know, moving to yellow or red or whatever. And, you know, it takes more time. It takes more effort. It means that you're like having to build relationships with your kids, but those are things that you should be doing as a teacher anyway. And and I think it it helps you build a better culture in your classroom. We um, also have all of our teachers have think space where kids can go to if they just need a moment to get themselves together. And research has shown that kids usually, you know, have like an outburst, like are are triggered into like frenzy because they are scared, uh, mad, or super excited, right? (laughs) Sometimes you're just like super excited to get to that math lesson and you're just like losing it physically. um, And you just need a moment to go go get your body together Mm -hmm. so you're safe for your friends and then you can come back. And so having that space, allowing for, that right like that's almost like that's like the the manifestation like the physical manifestation of like giving grace like go literally get yourself yeah like get yourself to like because I, I need a little thing space like I just need a moment yeah um, to get myself together every teacher can do that too you can create that space in your classroom um so that you're allowing for um that that grace for your kids it's scaffold right like it's in kindergarten it's usually you apologize, right? Like the, <laughs> how do we make it better? I apologize. That's exactly right. Please go apologize to your friend. And, and then, you know, like there, there's layers to that as well. It is like, mm, I'm sorry. And then like, not, no, like, what are you sorry for? How did you think it made them feel? Like, how would you want to be apologized to? And so you're building that empathy um, with students very early on um, and, and that acknowledgement that, you know, their, their actions have impact on other people. I this funny story of um, our, one of our other founders in third grade uh, got very upset with their teacher assistant. So we have two teachers in classrooms and she was doing a small group of math and he, he just got frustrated. Like he was just frustrated with the math and he like took it out on her and he took a, an erasable marker and went into the bathroom and wrote something ugly about her. It was all like spelled correctly, by the way. Uh, so Shout kudos, out to kudos there. <laughs> um, nonetheless, it was disrespectful. Yeah. So. Um, we had to one, like figure out who it was. And then he was like, it was me. And then he apologized. He's like, I'm sorry. And, you know, they had a conversation and they talked about like why he was so upset. And, you know, she reassured him that, you know, she wasn't upset with him. And like, they talked about like how to like better that time together because he was frustrated with the work. And then he was like, okay, all done. And we're like, no, no, (laughs) 
no, you're not done. <laughs> I'm so glad that you apologized and it was a genuine apology and you like worked that relationship out. I am so proud of you, but you were in third grade and you know better. So what do you think you need to do? Um, and he like, <laughs> there was definitely a moment where you're like, you could see like, do I, do I say it out loud? Cause if I say it out loud, like I'm going to have to do it. Um, but he finally was like, I have to clean up the wall and we're like yeah yeah you gotta clean up the wall (laughs) so um so that's scaffolding right like we were again super proud like right now like our kids do something and they're like I'm I'm so sorry I didn't mean to et cetera et cetera cetera, right that's fantastic and that is a huge win but you know there are consequences there are natural consequences to everyone's actions whether those are positive or negative right and like taking that stigma of like this is punishment no it's a consequence this is like just what happens um when you do something that you know has a positive consequence you you get that consequence too right and so that's also something that teachers can do and supporting their their students and like building of those skills as someone who coaches teachers I'm like oh yes this is very actionable this is very this is something that you can go and do and then if I bring back first year teacher Mm -hmm. hell even second year teacher Taylor I'm like (laughs) I can't do all that my school ain't gonna let me do all that I gotta I gotta do the color chart (laughs) I gotta call your mama now you're missing recess now you done miss what and so I think we we as a society have to understand that natural consequences and punishments are two different things Mm -hmm. and then once like you said it does require there to be a systemic thing happening in the school so teachers don't feel like they're the only ones doing it Mm -hmm. and that's quite often what happens is like a teacher will say well I'm doing it in my classroom but because Mm -hmm. we switch classes and that teacher over there doesn't do that or whatever Mm -hmm. the case it causes chaos Mm -hmm. and it stresses Mm -hmm. the kids out because mm-hmm. it's like, well, this this person got one expectations and rules, and this mm-hmm. other person, I know she's just going to immediately call my mama. So, mm-hmm. like, what inconsistency, is the, right? That yeah, inconsistency. Yeah. So I appreciate yep. that it's a school wide thing, and I'm also thinking about how can we support, particularly our core members, in being able to bring some of these to their school leaders. Mm-hmm. Sorry, was that your was that your next thing, Henry? Oh, that was actually Ashley's. That was oh, yeah. Ashley's. It's similar, <laughs> similar. I have a similar question, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Because when I think about core members, when I think about teachers in general, and then I also couple that with our recent like teacher appreciation week and <laughs> just in general, like a nationwide, worldwide teacher shortage and just teacher retention. <laughs> what kind of supports do you have in place? And I don't know if it's the same line you were going down Taylor but like what types of supports do you have in place just to make sure that like your staff and and you yourself feel supported in this work because it's a lot I mean it's not cumbersome but it's also you are literally emotionally supporting not just 30 humans you're supporting like your staff you're supporting each student that walks through that door as you were speaking about a lot of the things and amazing things that you're doing at your school, um, that popped up in my head because in order for the work to continue, it has to be sustained. And mm-hmm. nobody wants a school leader, especially someone who's brought, and I'm sure you have a, an amazing team, has brought this phenomenal mm-hmm. program to your school um, to eventually feel like that in a couple of years. So made me think about that. Yeah, absolutely. People do have to have capacity, Taylor. Absolutely. Um, I I think it's one like 
part of the reason that we do the trauma work is yes, we had these, we had students that were manifesting uh, some violent behaviors as a, as a result of their trauma. And we had to do something different. That all kind of came in this like same perfect storm of me going back to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. uh, to therapy. Boom. boom. <laughs> uh, That's it. So, so yeah, uh, after Maria, uh, Hurricane Maria in, in Puerto Rico, I went home and I buried my maternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, it was almost a year to the day of uh, burying my paternal grandmother. And so I just lost like these very important, like big figures in my life very quickly. And then going to Puerto Rico, and seeing the devastation of Maria like was, was a lot. It was yeah. like more than I knew it was. Oh I God. came home from my trip and I like struggled to get out of bed. I like would put my big girl panties on and go to work and then come home and get straight into bed. Mm-hmm. Um, it took everything out of me just to like be a functioning person. And I knew that was not good for anyone. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for my husband. It wasn't good for the kids that, you know, I had parents entrust me with. And so actually the counselor at our school recommended um, a therapist for me. Um, And I had been looking, but, you know, finding a good therapist is tough because it's a relationship. Mm. finding a woman of color who's it's a therapist harder. is harder <laughs> tell um, me about it yeah okay. yeah and so I, I found my wonderful therapist and we dug in and it was hard hard work and some days I felt worse coming out of her office than I did yep. going into her office yep. um dug into you know my um, in my childhood, like my father was abusive, uh, physically, emotionally, mm-hmm. um, you know, started with my mother, sprouted to you know, my brother and I, and I hadn't really worked through any of that. And so like, that was real. It was real work. It was like, it, it, it was not for the faint of heart, but it was necessary. And, and I am real open with that, with my network with my teens and we have really robust benefits and like a big part of those benefits is ensuring that we cover um therapists mm. uh, we have free therapists you know we it is a value yeah. um and if you're not taking care of yourself you can't take care of others um and this year in particular you know we went through covid and i think like covid was hard but it was a space for we were like just rallying around a, a, a like a common goal, like ensuring that our kids had everything that they needed. Um, and then second year, it was um, it was a little bit more of the same. Um, it was we were a little more tired, but we were still like rallying around, like all right, well, where are we doing hybrid? We coming back, you know, like navigating uncertainties. And this year, I think has been the hardest out of all of them because the, the one, the novelty is gone. Two, everybody has like fatigue on top of fatigue. Three, there is, you know, 
this great resignation uh, of teachers who are just burnt out, um, which means that other teachers are taking on more responsibility and then the cell is getting burnt out, right? And so for us, it's like, you can, you have to have the airplane mentality of putting on your air mask before you put it on to somebody else. Um, You can't come into school and be your full self or, you know, the 28 children in your classroom if you're not fully there yourself. And I know that firsthand, right? Um, And I I think that makes a lot of difference when we think about like representation, when we think about like why it's important. So I think about things like that because decisions are made differently from by someone who has been in the shoes of those that they're making decisions for. We also, you know, our equity and inclusion work, we give a lot of onus to our, our teachers, right? And so there is a space where we, um, we're debating whether we're going to keep our masks on in school or not. And we gave it to teachers and staff members and they voted. And it was out of that vote that we all decided to keep our masks on to keep our kids and each other safe, even though our network vaccine rate is really high. We voted on next year's calendar because we're like, listen, y'all are the ones that have to be at work, right? Like, so here are like options that give us like what is mandated that we have to do um, in different spaces. And you all decide, you tell us like what, what is going to like fulfill you next year so that this work is manageable mm-hmm. and they next year's calendar. So I think it's a little bit of like lead by example again, right? Like be really transparent of all of the things that you have gone through um, and make spaces so that other people are able to heal um, as well. This idea of like, you don't run through the door and close it behind you. You run through the door, hold the door and like, and then grab, (laughs) (laughs) grabbing, right? Like you don't know, no one left behind. Um, And also like give voice. Uh, because I, I can, I can assume that, um, that, that doesn't always bring like the best outcomes. In fact, it usually doesn't. Yeah, this is awesome. And I'm, and I'm sure we can continue to unpack more and more and more because this is, you know, this is very deep work, as you said, uh, we're going to wrap things up here, but I do want to just give you the opportunity. If you, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on to talk about that we didn't already cover? Um, and then I'll have like one last thing. I am just so thrilled and honored to have spent the past hour with the three of you. Thank you so much. Um, I, oh, thank you. Actually, I think you said at, at one point, like people are like, oh, TFA. Um, you <laughs> all are like the like prime example of like, no, TFA is amazing. And um, there are so many uh, young people of color that come through TFA who, who want to do impactful work and you guys are doing it. And that's something to be like really proud of. And I'm like, as a TFA alum, I'm proud of it. Um, So thank you all for spending time with me. The one thing that I did not touch upon is um, Esperanza becoming a bilingual school, um, which is another segment. Um, But, you know, the reason that we did the trauma-informed program was because we were being um, responsive to our community. And Esperanza has an 80% um, Spanish-speaking community, a Latinx community. Um, And, you know, I started out with my story of being an ESL student and always being an ESL person um, and how that's a deficit-based categorization. And so we're flipping the switch at Esperanza and we're ensuring that our native Spanish speakers know that they are 
come to school as whole people. They aren't a deficit, they're an asset. Um, you, language, culture, identity is all an asset that they're bringing to um, a fuller school community. And um, with a 50% native Spanish speaking um, cohort and a 50% native English speaking cohort, our native English speaking students who um, get to come to a school that's open enrollment, that doesn't like test to get in, allows for an opportunity for students that wouldn't normally have a bilingual education to have this incredible asset when they uh, leave Esperanza in eighth grade. So that's a little snippet, but um, super important as we think about as our, our city is changing, our country is changing, um, education should also reflect those changes. Oh, what a way, what a great way to cap it off. Um, beautiful. Well, the last thing I have for us is if anybody wants to know more about you and the work that you do or, or want to connect with you somehow, uh, where can they go? What can they do? Yeah, um, they can go to communityacademies.org to find more about the work that we're doing um, network-wide. And I am accessible through my email, which is mking and at communityacademies.org, which is very long. So sorry. <laughs> all good. <laughs> it is all good. Wow, I couldn't be more grateful. I think this is a great way to just slam dunk into the closing of our second season. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah. It was an absolute pleasure. Sorry, we went a little over time. Selfishly, I will say though, it was so worth it. <laughs> yeah. Thank y'all. Thank you so, so much. This was a gift. Thank you. I can't wait to come visit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So have a wonderful summer um, because school, the school year is wrapping up, wrapping up, wrapping up. Please follow mm -hmm. us on Instagram at entangled underscore podcast. You can also reach out to us uh, via email at entangled, uh, entangled at teachforamerica.org. Um, it's been an honor to spend mm -hmm. time with you all today. It's been an honor to sit alongside my amazing co-host this entire season. Um, season two. Season two. Season two. Done. Oh season my God. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. <laughs> All right. See y'all next school year. Bye, y'all. <laughs>